Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Hello and welcome to Straight White American Jesus. I am your host, Dan Miller, Associate Professor of Religion and Social Thought at Landmark College. We are hosted in partnership with the CAP Center at UCSB, and you are listening to my uh, series on You're Not Welcome Here, focusing on identity, identity politics. Uh, we've been introducing those concepts. We'll be looking at things like uh, how concrete social identities form and how that informs American uh, religion and politics. So thank you for joining me. Uh, I want to invite uh, any who have not to consider supporting Straight White American Jesus uh, on our Patreon account. We value the work that we're doing, and we hear from a lot of other people who do as well, and your support allows us to keep doing it. And for all of those who already uh, support us uh, financially and in so many other ways, I want to thank you all. I also want to thank those who reach out to me. Uh, I can be reached at danielmiller at landmark.edu. All of you who've reached out to me with great comments, questions, thoughts, insights, follow-ups about the, uh, the different episodes and the topics raised in this series, keep those questions and comments coming. They really do inform what I do, and I try to incorporate them into to what we're doing. I try to respond to everything uh, that I hear from folks and all the inquiries I get, and I know that I miss some. So if I've missed you, I apologize. Uh, very often the ideas and thoughts that people are bringing up are things that we will be getting to in the series. So I just want to thank everybody for their continued support and, and your listening. So let's dive right in here. I want to recap a little bit from the discussion in the last episode and lead into the discussion in this episode. And last week, uh, I looked at uh, Mark Lilla, a historian from uh, Columbia University, and a little bit from Tucker Carlson as well, but I want to focus on the Mark Lilla bit here, because he's critical of identity and identity politics because he says it represents what he calls a Facebook view of identity. And we talked about this, and it's this notion that those who appeal to identity as a political force are simply appealing to something that's a matter of personal preference. It's purely subjective. It's arbitrary. It's completely individual. And so for somebody like Lilla, identity politics is actually a contradiction in terms because those who assert identities are only ever concerned about their own interests. They have no shared in a, excuse me, no, no interest in a shared sense of us or we or the common good. And so we talked about this and those who've read Lilla or are familiar with him know that, that he comes off very much as the angry white guy when it comes to identity and identity politics. I don't want to hammer on Lilla more. I only highlight all of that to say that I made the argument last time that that is a ridiculous view about identity. And it's not limited to Mark Lilla. Uh, it's not limited to the political left. Uh, it exists sort of all over the place, but it's a silly view. And why? Well, I made the argument there that Social identities that matter politically or socially, and by that I just mean that have what we might call the critical mass, enough social awareness, enough people who are part of them, enough mobilization to have a concrete social or political effect. Those identities that are in that sense politically salient, right? They're the ones that matter for politics and society. They're the ones without which we can't think about politics and society because we're going to lose big groups of people in our discussion. Those identities, identities like 
race or ethnicity or gender identity or sexual orientation uh, or political ideology for that matter, religious identity, any number of them, right? Those identities are always collective. They are never just individual or personal. They are never a matter of personal preference. Lilla's model of Facebook, a uh, Facebook conception of identity is just silly on the on, well, the face of it. No one cares how I, taken in isolation, just as myself, all alone, quote unquote, identify. Nobody cares. It may be important to me. It may be of interest to me. I might like to tell other people about it. But if nobody else shares that identity with me, nobody cares. By which I simply mean that identity is not going to move the needle on any social issues or political issues. Nobody is going to have to take account of who I am as an individual or how I identify when they decide which political candidate to back or what proposal to support for their local school district or how to vote on election day. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. Political identities, identities that are, again, to use this phrase, politically salient, that matter politically, that have a social or political critical mass, are collective identities. They have to be identities that involve a multitude of people, which, again, is why Lilla's suggestion that they have no shared sense of we or us is just silly. The we or us, that sense of collective identity, it's built into the identities. There is no politically or socially salient identity group unless it's a group, hear the word group, which means that that's, that collective sense of we or us is built in. So that's sort of where we were last week looking at Lilla's argument and, and why it just doesn't hold water. It just doesn't work. I want to move the discussion and the thought forward this week, and I want to connect that point with where, where I'm headed today or tonight, or whenever you happen to be listening to this podcast. I've said since the beginning that identity is about recognition, right? It's about recognizing individuals or groups as the individuals or groups that they are. It's about categorizing. We've talked about these kinds of things. I want to start thinking about this notion of recognition a little bit more, and we're going to get into this more and more and more. We're going to start digging more and more deeply into these kinds of issues of what identification is, what it is to identify with a group, what it is to be recognized as part of a group or to be recognized as having an identity or to recognize oneself as having one identity. We're going to dig more and more and more into these issues. But building from last week, what we can see is a sort of start on this is that for an identity to matter socially or politically. And again, I don't mean to disparage individuals who identify in different ways or maybe have elements of their personal uh, identity that matter a great deal to them and maybe not to others. I don't mean to, to dismiss any of that. All I mean to say is that if we talk about identity politics, we are talking about identities uh, that are collective, that are shared, that have enough critical mass to move the needle politically or socially. Okay? And for an identity to do that, it has to be recognized by others. By definition, if an identity is going to have social or political force, if it's going to be an identity that politicians have to sit up and take note of, if it's going to be an identity that is going to uh, lobby, if it's going to be an identity that is going to try to sway uh, social or political policy, if it's an identity that people are going to have to keep in mind when they run for office or when they vote for candidates, it has to be a collective shared identity. So if it's going to have social or political force, that means that others have to recognize it as an identity. And that may sound obvious, 
but it's so obvious, or perhaps it's so just right on the surface that people overlook it. People like Lilla miss it. People like, in my opinion, Bernie Sanders or Clinton or their followers miss that. So many critics of identity politics miss this point, right? People have to recognize it as an identity, and they do. People don't oppose Black Lives Matter because it's a bunch of individuals asserting their individual identity. They oppose it because they recognize it as a collective, widely shared identity. People don't oppose uh, women standing up and demanding greater rights or the, the, the Me Too movement. They don't oppose that because it's individuals expressing their individual opinions. They oppose it because they recognize a shared identity and a group that forms around it. People don't oppose the LGBTQ plus community and its demands for rights because they think they're just a bunch of individuals, as, as Lilla would say again, asserting their Facebook notion of identity. They oppose the group because it is a shared identity and they recognize it and they recognize those who, who hold to it and they recognize that they have political and social force. So if a social identity is going to have that force, others have to recognize it. And if it is going to, to become a collective shared identity, its members have to recognize one another as members, right? And this might seem like a weird point, but this is, is one of the really significant things to think about. For an identity to work, it's not enough for me to assert an identity, it's not enough for me to assert that I, I should have some sort of social rights or privileges or some sort uh, or level some sort of political demands. Rather, if you and I are going to make demands based on our identity, we have to recognize each other as sharing that identity. If I'm going to band with others, I have to recognize them as having the same identity as me. They have to recognize me as having the same identity as them, and we have to join together. And if others are going to join with us, they have to recognize themselves as sharing that identity. They have to recognize us as sharing that identity with them. So again, it's never simply an individual matter. And when we talk about identity politics, or at least when I talk about identity politics, that's what I'm talking about. So it's inherently collective. It's inherently shared. It is inherently uh, built around a sense of us uh, and we and a certain sense of, of certainly the common good or at least that which would make society better for us than it has been. So somebody will say, Dan, great, interesting, I guess, but you're sort of beating this, this, this horse to death at this point. Why, why does this matter? Why all this talk about recognition? Why all of this talk? Because again, it means, and this is a really key idea, and if I tell my students this, if people want to talk to me about identity politics or about identity, for me, this is sort of a fundamental realization that we have to have. It means that identity is never purely individual. It never operates the way that Lilla thinks it does. Identity is intensely personal, right? It can cut to the heart of who we feel we are. And I don't want anybody to mishear me saying that, right? We all occupy different identity positions that give us our sense of who we are, that help to make us us. Identities or identity positions that if we didn't occupy them, if we didn't have the identities we do, we wouldn't be the people we are. They are intensely personal. They are what make us the people that we are, okay? But identity is never private or individual or merely subjective, right? So it's personal, but it's never simply private. 
Why? Because this depends on recognition. If I'm going to assert my identity, it's not enough that I feel it deeply. It has to be recognized by others. So think about it this way, without recognition, we can't even assert an identity. You can say I identify as X, Y, or Z, or I'm part of this or that or other community, but if people don't recognize you as possessing that identity, if they don't recognize you as embodying it, if they don't recognize you as belonging to that community, your assertions aren't going to matter. So again, this is why Lilla's position is just silly. People can post whatever they want on Facebook, to use that analogy, But if it doesn't resonate with others, who cares, right? It's the same way with identities. And that means that identity is not unilateral. I don't get to declare it on my own, but it also means that I don't get to deny the identity of others unilaterally. And we've all had these conversations where somebody doesn't like some social group or they are quote unquote uncomfortable with that social group or they quote unquote don't understand the social group or they don't understand what the big deal is about why they have to agitate politically or socially or whatever. And they'll say, I just don't even see it. I don't think that that's real. They might say, "I, I don't see I don't see in color. Right. I'm colorblind. I don't see that people are different races or ethnicities. Well, guess what? If enough other people in the world do recognize those identities and those differences, it doesn't matter if somebody just unilaterally decides to deny it. So this this notion of recognition is central to identity. It means that in an important sense, if we're talking about identity politics, there can be no identity. There can be no identity politics without recognition, which means identity is never simply individual. Again, this distinction that I make, it's intensely personal. It is never individual. And we see, we can see if we look around the problems that arise and the difficulties that we run into, if we don't recognize, if we don't recognize, if we don't recognize the significance of recognition, if we don't appreciate how, how important recognition is, both for the acceptance of or the denial or contestation of identity. And as I was thinking about this and, and getting ready for uh, to put together this episode, something happened over the last few days that really illustrated some of these points. And that was the issue where Whoopi Goldberg uh, was suspended from her position hosting The View because of her comments about the Holocaust. And they, the, the hosts were discussing uh, a Tennessee school board decision to ban the Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel Mouse, which is about... Uh, the, the the Nazis and the occupation uh, in Germany and the oppression of Jewish people and that experience in the Holocaust and so forth. And Whoopi Goldberg made a statement uh, sort of in that context that the Holocaust was, quote, not about race. And this is what created a firestorm for her. She apologized but was suspended, not permanently as I understand it, but suspended from the view and it turned into this whole thing. Now, I, I don't want to get into a discussion about whether or not she was she was canceled or something like this, or 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 anything like that. Like that, those would be good discussions to talk about. What should the reaction have been, and so forth. But what I want to highlight, because this is why it caught my attention, 
is what this tells us about identity and recognition, because we can talk about these things and I can talk about these things and I can I can talk about them all day and it can get pretty down in the weeds and pretty wonky and pretty technical. But we see these things play out in real life all the time. So one of the things that it highlighted in relation to this notion of identity and recognition and so forth is the disconnect that can take place between the widespread recognition of an identity, in this case, say, Jewish identity as an ethnic or racial identity, the disconnect that can occur between that and those who don't share or are unfamiliar with that identity, right? Whatever was going on for Goldberg when she made these statements, it clearly was not clicking with her that for millions of people in the world, being Jewish is an ethnic and racial matter. And that for many, many other people who are not Jewish, it is a racial or ethnic matter, right? We can think of white supremacy. White supremacy in the U.S. has always been anti-Semitic in nature, not just because of the purported religious differences between Judaism and Christianity, but because Jewish people were not seen as white, right? So for her to say it's not, it wasn't about race was, was just sort of missing the point, but it does highlight this, this disconnect that can occur between somebody who's unfamiliar with an identity who doesn't recognize it in the way that others do, both those within the community and many others around that community. And in fact, this cuts to the heart of identity politics, right? A crucial element of identity politics is establishing the recognition of particular identities. Because with recognition and with increasingly widespread recognition comes legitimacy. The more people are familiar with a social identity or a social group, the more comfortable they feel with that group, the more they begin to see that group as legitimate and their political demands as legitimate. So this is an aim of identity politics. So increasingly widespread recognition of marginalized or minority identities is a crucial gain of identity politics. It's one of the reasons identity politics gets off the ground. And which again highlights why recognition or non-recognition of identity is never simply about personal preference. The complexities of Goldberg's statement and her response to it and the response to the response and the outrage that it caused also highlights a point that we're going to revisit in a number of ways moving forward, right? This is going to be a central idea or cluster of ideas that we will be talking about a lot on this series. And that has to do with the complexity of identity and the contested nature of identity, right? Because so far, I've talked about identity and identity politics and what identity is, and I've, I've kind of simplified things, right? But identity is complex. And this, this, illustrate, this case with, with Goldberg really illustrates this because Jewish identity demonstrates this really, really clearly, right? There are those for whom being Jewish is a solely religious identity right? People can convert to Judaism, right? People who are not ethnically Jewish, who don't have a lineage that traces back uh, through Jewish parents or relatives and so forth, can convert to Judaism. And for them, Judaism may very much be a religious identity. But Judaism can also be an ethnic identity with no religious connotations, as with many, many, many secular Jewish people who identify as Jewish, who experience themselves as Jewish, who consider themselves part of the Jewish community, but who don't practice religious Judaism, right? And of course, Judaism itself as a religion is incredibly diverse and takes all different kinds of forms, right? So 
what it highlights is that any identity, and, and Judaism is just the one that we're talking about here, Jewish identity, is complex, and it's multifaceted, and it is layered, and that complexity can cause confusion. And I suspect this is part of the confusion at the heart of Goldberg's statements, is the, is the complexity of what Jewish identity is, and the question of how ethnicity or racial identity plays in with that. We can also introduce the idea here, and again, we're going to come back to these points over and over and over moving forward, which is that none of us occupy only one identity position. Again, I've been talking about identity so far in a pretty simple way, as if it's very straightforward, I identify as X, Y, or Z, but for most of us, we occupy multiple identity positions, and they overlap. And each of those positions might have its own complexities, and they often conflict with each other, right? We often occupy or embody identities that don't fit together very well. Maybe they don't fit together at all. Maybe we experience extreme dissonance in those different identities. And, and I've had the privilege since starting the podcast and the series of hearing from people who talk about this, right? Who have whatever identity they might have, say, in the workplace or in their church or with their families, or in their racial community that may be different from the identity they feel they can carry out in their gender or uh, the, uh, their, their gender identity, or their sexual orientation, or whatever it is, right? All of us, with a little bit of reflection, can become aware of these multiple identities that we occupy, that we, that we occupy these and that they often conflict. And this is why I think that's significant, because the flip side of this is that it also highlights that occupying one identity position, especially even a marginalized or minority identity position, right? Even if you are a member of a community that has historically been marginalized, that has been ostracized, that has been persecuted, that has lacked political or social power or what have you, occupying that identity position in no way gives you privileged or special insight into other marginalized or minority identity positions. And this is a really key point because I think that there's often a kind of assumption that all of those who have been marginalized or oppressed or excluded on the basis of occupying some identity or other, that everybody who's had that experience shares a certain kind of solidarity with everybody else who has had that kind of experience. And that simply isn't the case. We've seen that historically, where different groups that we, sitting where we are now, looking back historically, might see as having all been marginalized or excluded, but they didn't see eye to eye with each other. They were not sort of natural political or social allies. There was no natural or, or automatic alliance that formed out of that. We see it in contemporary debates. We see it in contemporary debates where uh, some women who identify as feminists and activists of different kind do not affirm trans women as women. Uh, we have seen where some uh, religious communities of color are opposed to some legislation about the inclusion and protection of LGBTQ plus individuals, right? We've seen it, and I think we see it here. I think we see Goldberg as a member of, of particular communities simply not recognizing the reality of how many Jewish people identify how they recognize themselves and how they are recognized by others, and really crucially, the significance that that recognition has had for that community historically. These issues can also come up, and, and, and here I'm just moving into issues that we'll be looking at in the future, when one group 
that has been marginalized historically gains a measure of social recognition or acceptance, possibly even becoming part of the mainstream in a given place, like, say, the United States, but then is reluctant to recognize less accepted social groups, right? In other words, I guess what I'm after here is the notion that having experienced marginalization or oppression because of one's identity does not guarantee that one will be accepting or understanding of others who experience marginalization or oppression because of their identity. And I think that that's something we've seen uh, in, in a number of issues that go on at present. And again, I, I know I talk about uh, trans and, and gender uh, gender non-binary folks a lot as, as an example, but I think that this is an example where lots of groups that had been marginalized or who still experience marginalization tend not to recognize the legitimacy of others. So where does that take us? It kind of closes out this idea for me or carries forward the idea from last week of why identity is never simply individual, right? If it was, uh, nobody would care if Whoopi Goldberg said that the Holocaust wasn't about race, right? The fact that that created the firestorm it did is precisely because what it means to be Jewish and the role uh, and the significance of being Jewish to the experience of those communities in the Holocaust is something that is widely recognized and it's not up for just individual interpretation, okay? It's also because at the heart of identity politics is we, we have to recognize that identity isn't merely individual. It isn't just subjective preference, right? but that it is inherently collective. It is an inherently social phenomenon. Where is that going to take us? That's going to take us deeper into these discussions of what it means to recognize, quote unquote, a social identity. What does it mean to, quote unquote, identify as? And I'm, I'm sorry for the air quotes, but you're hearing me. You're not seeing me. I put those there because we use that language all the time. Somebody identifies as mixed race or identifies as queer or identifies as male or what have you. What does that mean? What does it mean to identify as something? How does that relate to these issues of recognition? How does that shape my sense of self? And then how moving outward from that, does that shape our national sense of identity? How does that shape our politics? How does that shape our religious identity? These are all the things that we'll be talking about moving forward. For now, uh, I've talked on long enough and I am out of time. So I, again, just want to say one more time, thank you to everybody who listens, everybody who supports us. Again, I can be reached at danielmiller at landmark.edu and would love to hear from you. Please consider supporting Straight White American Jesus financially if, if that's something that you would be willing to do. Regardless, uh, we thank you. We are grateful for all of you. Please continue to reach out to us. And until next time, I simply say uh, be safe and be well. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.